have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Philemon. I'd say it's chapter 1, but that's all there is. Philemon chapter 1. We spent the last several months really in the pastoral letters, which were letters written for the church to know who she is, what her message, structure, and behavior must be in light of that, so that she will reflect the heart of God who desires to give mercy and salvation to sinners, even the worst of us. Immediately following First and Second Timothy and Titus in Scripture is the very brief letter to a man named Philemon. Titus 2.11 and 3.4 both told us that the more we hear the message of grace and the mercy of God that have appeared in the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel, the works that do reflect that saving heart of God will be produced by it. The grace and mercy of God are the means by which the purpose or the goal of the pastoral letters is accomplished. The church of Jesus Christ is a new humanity in the world. We are the people that Jesus Christ has reconciled to God. We are the proof that history is at the end. The end time community whose presence in the world proclaims the fact that God has realized his eternal purpose, meaning that he is the Lord and the God of all history. And the reconciliation that has been achieved in this gospel is meant to work its way through humanity's conflict and estrangement at every single level. Philemon immediately demonstrates the truth of the pastoral letters by displaying the gospel through the love of Christ for us in action towards one another. And I think that's why this little letter in the canon follows these three. I think that's deliberate. In a short little letter meant to bring about the reconciliation of a slave to his master, Paul is saying, here, this is what that looks like. This is what I've been saying. This is what it looks like in action. Beloved, we must recognize our position in Christ. What he has done, especially, I would say, and I think the scripture says, when it comes first to how we treat one another, now that we have been Redeemed. Sin is the reason human beings are divided. Sin is the reason churches become divided. It was sin that brought the curse that keeps people at odds with one another and fractured humanity into various people groups with all these differences in the first place. Sin did this. But what God has accomplished in the gospel through Jesus Christ is the end of all conflict. And the beginning of true peace. And that is meant to be obvious even in the everyday life and relationships inside every local branch of the church. The new community that Jesus Christ has created through the gospel is the one marked by the love of God that overcomes conflict and estrangement. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, for your name's sake, for your glory, for your gospel and the people you mean to save, for everyone that will hear, make my words clear. 
Overcome me, Father. Help me to preach the text and stay on target and look to you. Please help us listen and believe. Watch over us. Heal us. Make us whole. Make us one. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm actually going to read Philemon to you in its entirety. All right, let's start in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own Accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Onesimus was a slave of a Christian man in Colossae named Philemon. We know that Onesimus and therefore Philemon were part of the church and lived in the city of Colossae because Paul had told us so in his letter to the whole church in Colossae in Colossians 4.9 actually. Onesimus probably came to know about the great apostle Paul in the church in Philemon's house because that's where he was a slave, a servant. Because at some point, for one reason or another, and what's implied in the text is that Onesimus had either stolen money from Philemon or mismanaged his funds, Onesimus decided to flee his master, run away, escape, if you will, look for a safe haven in Rome, where apparently he visits this Paul he's heard so much about that's close to his master to figure things out, since he knows of their relationship. But in verse 10... What's implied there is that in his visits or conversation with Paul, at some point, Onesimus the slave was born again and realized in light of that that he had to be reconciled to his master Philemon. And for that, he will need Paul's help. Thus, we get the letter of 
Philemon. Paul most likely wrote both Philemon and Colossians around the same time in A.D. 60 or 61. In fact, it's Tychicus and this Onesimus himself in Colossians 4, 7 and 4, 9 who delivered Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And so the purpose of this letter is to reconcile a slave and his master because the gospel requires it. What the gospel proclaims means at the street level, the rift between Onesimus and Philemon cannot be allowed to continue. Rifts between people in the church can not be allowed to continue. Again, Roman slavery, remember this, looked very different from more modern forms of slavery. We're not trying to excuse slavery per se. What we're saying is that slaves back then, in this kind of slavery, were granted many rights. Race was not really an issue uh, of slavery at that time as it became. But one thing about slavery has always been true. Slaves were owned. They did not belong to themselves. They weren't free. So that meant they're totally dependent on their master to survive. They had no autonomy. They belonged completely to someone else for money, for work. And so there was a household code of sorts that slaves in the Roman Empire lived by. There are things you did do. There are things you didn't do. But the gospel of God's grace and mercy that has come in the appearance of Jesus Christ circumvents all of that. It doesn't matter what the code is. The gospel is supreme over it, and the church must reflect that fact, even in the midst of slavery in the Roman Empire. Paul's appeal here is built on the principles he wrote to the whole church in Colossae about the slave-master relationship back in Colossians. Let me read it to you, 3.22 to 4.1. Bond servants, that's slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's an amazing title. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, so Paul talks to both, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So when it comes to slaves and masters on the earth, Paul makes his frame of reference in his appeal to them, the cosmic master of all heaven and all earth, the Lord Christ. That's that's stacking the Lordness of Christ, the Anointed One, as a frame of reference. The Lord Christ. The Gospel, in other words, levels the playing field and makes everyone truly equal. Both slave and master are accountable together, equally, to the Lord. Beloved, there is a sense in which all of humanity, whether we are masters, slaves, bosses, employees, rich, poor, are all slaves, servants of the King. So as his very own people in the world, the people that actually belong to him, we see all the codes and relationships that the world has created through the lens of the fact that, yes, we're in it, but we have been reconciled to God and made a part of a new creation that's growing in the world now. So even though Philemon has been wronged 
and Onesimus is his slave, and there's a code at work there, Philemon ought to forgive Onesimus and welcome him now, mainly as his brother in Christ, even more than his slave. And Paul hopes, in addition to that, he'll release him back to Paul so he can keep helping him in the ministry of the gospel. So along with Timothy, by the way, and who knows how much he contributed to these letters, Paul writes to Philemon with grace and peace in verses 1 through 3, but also to some of the other members of the church in his house, Aphia and Archippus. So Paul probably intends for the principles here to be applied by all the believers in this little house church. By the way, don't romanticize house church. All right, I, I know we see it, but there were concrete cultural reasons for this, first of all. There, there wasn't like a cafeteria plan of churches in Colossae in the first century that you could attend. And so these believers had decided, you know what, we're going to do the house church thing as opposed to the big trendy program-laden church that's down the street. No, this was just the church. This was the reality of what they had to do. House churches, although... You could say in some ways they're much more conducive to um, real life together as believers. They, they still carry all the same difficulties as big church, as normal church, right? Um, I don't think the mode is the goal. I, in other words, I, I think that if that's what you need to do and that's better, do that. If, if, if this is better, do this. I don't, I don't think that's the point the Bible ever tries to make. But people are people is the point, whether you have Five or twelve or four hundred or a thousand of them, people are people. Um, the church we planted in Newark, Ohio, uh, it's been almost a, a decade ago now. When we first started meeting, we were meeting in our living room, uh, in our home, my wife and I's home. And uh, on Sunday mornings, we would we would have a we, we'd sing together and then we'd have preaching. And uh, one Sunday morning, I was I was preaching in my living room. So so there we lived in a split level. So the podium was kind of in front of the steps. You know, one goes up, one goes down. And right at the top of the steps that went up was a was our bathroom. And I'm preaching, and this little boy named Kenny Wayne, I'm not going to tell you his last name because he's visited here before. Poor guy. He, he Hopefully he still doesn't do this. But anyway, right in the middle of the sermon, he walks up the steps, goes in the bathroom, doesn't shut the door, and you know what happened. Everybody in this room knows what happened next. And I... I know that's loud. You know how loud that is when you're preaching? And that's the sound. And he's just not a care in the world. This little fella just went start to finish. No breaks. I don't know if he had a whole pack of juice boxes before he got there. It was ridiculous. It was embarrassing. It was difficult. It was weird. And you got you can't acknowledge it at the time. You can only laugh about it later, but you got to keep right on going with the sermon. And so, well, those are the unique difficulties of house church. Thankfully, our bathrooms are far enough away and the doors enough closed. Unless you're in a really bad spot, we aren't going to hear anything, right? So don't don't read like, oh, house church. It was is, house church is, is is as hard as any other kind of church. Church is hard because people are people, and little boys are little boys, and when they got to go, they got to go. No mercy. No thought for anything else. There are always relational issues, always. But our conflict and our rifts and discord and strife. Look, I know that's, in other words, people always say, well, that's, that's church. I know. And it's wrong. It's wrong. You, you don't just allow it. You don't just say, well, that's the way people are and that's the way it's going to be. No, 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 not now. 
Not, not in light of what Jesus has done. He came to earth. He lived. He died. He rose again. He reconciled us all the way up to God. Conflicts and rifts don't just stand now. Something bigger than them, bigger than what I deserve, bigger than, than what is right and wrong or deserved or normal at street level is this gospel that transcends all of it. So our conflict, our rifts, our discord, our strife, those are remaining marks of the fall, remaining marks of the curse, which is why it's so important for the church as God's new creation community to be reconciled and at peace with one another. That's really one of the things that marks off the church as entirely separate from the world. That there's true reconciliation and forgiveness and therefore hope to be found among us. Paul is thankful for this little church because of their love and faith in Christ Jesus in verses 4 to 7. He believes that if what they have gets out, so to speak, that it will be effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Just the sharing of their faith would accomplish that because Paul has personally benefited from it. In verse 7, he's derived much joy and comfort from the love of these saints, he says. So Paul is writing this letter in confidence. These are a gospel-saturated people. Their eyes are on Christ. Now listen carefully one more time to verses 8 through 10 because this is the heart of the letter. Let me read it again. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you Hear those words, command, required, love, appeal. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That appeal is loaded with truth. Please notice this. Don't forget this. Paul was an apostle. Paul had an authority in the church that nobody has had since. The apostles had a unique authority in that period of the church, he absolutely then has the authority over the church to literally command Philemon to do this, to make him release Onesimus to his service, drop any and all charges against him and be reconciled to him. That's important because he doesn't use it. This is a living example of Titus 2.11 and Titus 3.4. Paul knows that this love, the love and grace and mercy of the gospel that you and I now have been told is so filling the church in Colossae, in Philemon's house, will cause Philemon to do this. So Paul doesn't need to command it. He doesn't need to tell him, look, you are going to do this. Please notice the wording in verse 8. Paul could command it because it's required. Do you notice that? Jesus is our master. He owns us. He lays claim to us. If he says forgive, love, and be reconciled, and we don't do that, we are disobeying Jesus. Reconciliation is required. The gospel requires it because the gospel is built on reconciliation. So how does Paul go about it? Does he command Philemon, even though it's required? No, he doesn't. He appeals to Philemon. 
Beloved, even obedience to the commands for a Christian is not the result of force. Our obedience is not meant to come from a sense of duty. For one thing, doing your duty would not be enough. Jesus already made that clear. And it takes zero love for the master for a servant to be doing his duty. It's not what God is after. What is the gospel? How does the economy work in the gospel? By command? By force? No, by appeal. And appeals have an object. You're appealing to something. What is the object of Paul's appeal? What is he referencing? The gospel. Philemon, you're loved. You're accepted by God. You've been forgiven. He's taken away your guilt. You were a sinner. You were reconciled to God. So I appeal to you, do the same thing for Onesimus. The one who sinned against you. That's not manipulation. It's not heavy-handed guilt or force. It's just an appeal to the love of Christ for us in the gospel. When we use authority and force and law to bring about obedience to the commands of Scripture, we're doing two things at least. Number one, we're assuming that we can obey them. So all you have to do is push hard enough and inform well enough and people will do what you tell them to do. What we need to hear from Scripture is that that, that's not how commands, not even the commands are coming at believers like that. That's how the law comes at you. That's not how the gospel comes at you. And these commands are built on the fact that you've been accepted by God, not that you're trying to be. The first thing we do when we try to use authority and force and law to bring about obedience to the commands of Scripture We're assuming we can obey them, which means we don't understand the gospel because we don't understand the depth of our sinfulness and the damage it's fatally done to our will and our desire and our ability. And it puts all the focus in our Christianity then on our effort and our performance. The second thing we do is diminish the power and sufficiency of the gospel in our hearts. Jesus is not the frame of reference. We're not appealing to him. We're appealing to ourselves to do what's been required which we now know from the pastoral letters, will not lead us to being the kind of people God has called us to be. He brings that about by appealing to what Jesus has already done by his grace, by his goodness and mercy and loving kindness. We should not be obeying because we've been commanded. We should be obeying because we've been accepted. It's the religion the world creates that says, obey and you'll be accepted. The gospel says you're accepted. Now obey. Look at this. Paul believes that has the power to cause Philemon to grant his request. Which, by the way, remember, is a requirement. But that's not how Paul is framing it. Paul actually believes then what he wrote to Timothy and Titus. Grace trains us to be godly and it works when the need arises. So notice that Paul has just told you grace will train. The loving kindness of God will motivate people. Leave it there. What's the first thing he does? Proves it in the very next letter in Scripture. I won't command this. I'll appeal to the gospel. And it'll happen. The name Onesimus meant useful. Right In verse 11... Paul plays on that, acknowledging that Onesimus at one point had become useless to Philemon entirely. In fact, in verse 18, 
we find that some debt had been created by Onesimus. Something is owed to Philemon in a monetary sense, whether that means, again, Philemon mismanaged what, um, or I'm sorry, Onesimus mismanaged what Philemon put him over, or, or Onesimus just flat out stole from him. Philemon has literally lost money. He's lost holdings because of what Onesimus had done. But the gospel, Paul is telling Philemon, has made Onesimus live up to his name. He's become useful to both of them. Onesimus most likely became Paul's child in the faith. He talks about being his father because Paul's preaching had converted him. And so now Paul has a heart for this Onesimus. Paul has work for him to do in verse 13. But before Paul makes any final decisions about Onesimus, he wants Philemon's blessing. But beloved, remember, he didn't need that. He could have just commanded it, but he doesn't. In Titus 3.2, Paul shows perfect courtesy to Philemon. You notice that. He shows all good faith from Titus 2.10 so that the gospel doesn't become defiled in the heart of Philemon. In other words, Paul doesn't take advantage of Philemon because he's a believer. Do you see that? It's beautiful. He treats him with the utmost respect and kindness. And in verse 14, Paul doesn't command Philemon to release Onesimus, precisely so he won't do it out of compulsion, but of his own accord. When you go back to the requirements for eldership, the the, the first one is is the man's desire to do it, so that he doesn't do it out of compulsion, but of his own accord, willingly. That must be very important to God when it comes to what we do. He doesn't want us living, acting, doing good works out of compulsion, but willingly. Paul doesn't want Christian obedience, what is required to come from compulsion. I have to do this is the right thing to do. That's the wrong way to think. But out of desire. Well, what shapes our hearts To make our desires godly. What has the power to do that? How do people become like this? That sounds pretty far-fetched. Beloved, the grace and goodness and loving kindness of God. Christian preaching and teaching then should be going after the heart of God's people with the gospel in such a way that when we come across commands, we don't obey because we're told to, but because we want to. Hearing about God's grace and love and mercy in Jesus Christ again and again and again and again. Having the preacher or the teacher insist on it makes our desires God's desires. It's the gospel that gives life. It's not the word of man that gives life. It's not guilt that gives life. Guilt is very powerful. It doesn't give life, though. Guilt will motivate Christians to obey like they're not Christians. They're servants trying to earn their keep. What kind of tone will that create in the body of Christ? Think about it. Exhaustion. Fear, uncertainty, anger at other people who don't work as hard as you, who don't do as much as you because then you got to pull the weight. So see, it's very important how we structure our church so that we don't feed that and perpetuate that. Where grace reigns, nothing has to be threatened. 
Nothing has to be forced. And also nobody's built their expectations so high that there is this sense of discord between one another. When grace is the soap, love is the scent. Right? When, when you get out of the shower, you don't have to try to smell like soap unless you don't use soap, which I encourage you, use soap. But, but when you get out of the shower, you're not trying to smell like what you use to clean yourself. You smell like it. When grace is the shower, love will be the scent. We need bathed in it continually. In verses 15 and 16, Paul writes that maybe, Philemon, maybe, you know what, maybe God has been behind this all along. He's building his appeal. Maybe God had designed for Onesimus to flee from you so that he could meet me and become a useful brother in Christ for, for, for both of us, Philemon. Maybe that was the design. It would be so much better for Philemon if Onesimus was also his brother in Christ. That'd be a lot better than him just being his slave. And it would also be much better for Paul, who would receive the extra help he apparently needs very much in his ministry of the gospel. The joy of reconciled Christian fellowship is way better than any of the benefits that would come from the master-slave relationship. The compulsion relationship, isn't it? Grace is always better. Always. And what grace produces and how it produces it is always better than compulsion. The gospel makes us useful to one another. In fact, back in verse 8, Paul called himself an old man imprisoned in Rome. Read between the lines there. Philemon, I, I, I need help here. I'm getting old. I'm tired. If you release him for me, it would really help me. And notice Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't say, He's not useful to you anymore, but he's useful to me. No, no, no. He acknowledges he's useful to both of us. I'm just asking you for grace. Could you release him and send him back to me is, is what Paul is actually saying here. So it's simply Onesimus is now a brother in Christ. He's, he's way more than a slave. So it won't do to keep treating him like a slave is what Paul is saying. That's how big the gospel is. It lays claim to the rights we hold even over others and requires they must now be used for their good and not their harm, even if they owe us. And if we want to cry out unfair, God is just going to gently walk us up to Calvary, let us smell the blood, and remind us it isn't ours, but His, His Son's, not ours. What can he not require, beloved? God wasn't being unfair when he required Isaac from Abraham. God had called Abraham out through nothing of his own accord. God's grace moved upon Abraham. What could God not ask of him? There was no exchange of money. Abraham could not say, no, 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 I, I only put in 500. This is like 10,000. No, you put in nothing, right? You put in nothing. And yet God doesn't use compulsion to move us to act, right? It, it's, it's no, 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 look at what has been done to you. 
Look to your salvation. Paul is a Roman citizen. He's an apostle pleading for mercy on behalf of a runaway slave whose life is potentially forfeit because he ran away and might have even stolen from his master. So we know that Paul believed the gospel required love for free persons and slaves, no exceptions. Back up from that to get the big picture here for a moment, beloved. Philemon is a part of the church, God's end-time new creation community that has come into the world, a community built purely by grace. Onesimus is a part of that community now, too. He must be treated in light of that before he's treated in light of anything else. That's the appeal in verse 17. Receive him as your brother in Christ, not your slave. Release him. Forgive him. But again, that's, that's by appeal. You've been forgiven. You've been saved. Notice again, Paul's courtesy, his respect, his kindness. He's not twisting Philemon's arm. Look at verse 18. Anything he owes you as a result for his flight or his mistakes, I'll pay for it. Now, beloved, that's literal. Paul will bear the cost of the sins of Onesimus so that Philemon's heart is not only moved to forgive him with his grace upon grace, Philemon's given the luxury of knowing, look, you're not even going to lose materially. I'll take care of it. Isn't God kind? You see, the gospel would mean it isn't necessary to add in the money. But Paul does it anyway. Why would Paul be so giving himself? Well, because what happened to Paul? Paul was on his way to imprison and help kill Christians. And Paul was shown mercy that he didn't even ask for. And it has worked its way into the man's bones to such an extent that he's willing to lose money. Right? No, no, no. I, I know what it's like to have a debt paid by somebody that doesn't owe it. So let me pay for Onesimus. So in the economy of the gospel, that, that which comes, we're learning, that which comes as a result of love and faith and a recognition of God's grace is always better than that which comes as a result of compulsion and command. That's part of the reason why Jesus talks to the Israelites the way that he does. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'll tell you. Let me tell you the one thing you can't do, right? So that it's clear you're going to need me to save you, right? It looks like Paul takes the pen from the scribe here for a moment in verse 19 to close the letter himself with his own hand. And he reveals there that apparently Philemon had also been converted at one time by the ministry of Paul's proclamation of the gospel, just like Onesimus. And so he's honest in verse 20 about his intentions. He's not trying to hide anything. He needs the help of Onesimus. It would refresh his body and his soul to have the help. But Paul knows the power of the gospel. He's confident in verse 21 that Philemon has a grasp of it. Because remember verses 5 and 6. Even though he hasn't asked outrightly for Philemon to give him Onesimus for his ministry, he's only asked outrightly for his release. It is what he's asking behind the scenes here. And in verse 22, so you would think if Paul's going to benefit from this personally, wouldn't he be all the more apt to use compulsion? No. No. Paul trusts the gospel to do the required work. You cannot recognize that enough. 
Paul trusts the gospel to produce what is required. Paul doesn't lean on law. He doesn't lean on authority. He leans on the gospel. In verse 22, we find that Paul's anxious to see Philemon. He plans on visiting him. So Paul expects that justice will prevail and he'll be released from his wrongful house arrest that he's in when he writes this letter. And he'll be able to visit Philemon and Colossae where he is. Paul knew about reconciliation. Again, Paul knew about reconciliation. By the time this letter was sent, the Gospel of Mark had either recently been published or was about to be published. And Mark and Paul had split in Acts 13 and 14. There was some kind of rift there, but they had been reconciled. When you look, Mark is here. In fact, Mark is one of his own fellow workers now in verse 24. These letters, just so you know, were not written in an academic hall. They weren't written in seminary. They weren't written in an ivory tower. This theology is the result of years of real ministry, personal interaction, real relationships, and constant hardship. But Jesus is real. And His gospel is full of grace and mercy and love. And it's true, apparently, even in the grind of difficult, daily, everyday life and cultural relationships. It's real there. Beloved, sin has splintered us. It pits us against one another, even in the church. And nothing has the power to conquer sin but the gospel. Nothing. See, so if, if, if we just appeal to the will, if we appeal to the commandment, to the requirement, we're actually going to perpetuate rifts. We're not going to heal them. See, what, what, this is, this is going to sound self-serving. I do not mean it to be, but, but generally speaking, what comes from the pulpit will dictate the tone of the church. So, if, if, if I'm not insisting on grace and mercy, the rifts among us will just be perpetuated. They won't ever get healed because you're not hearing the healing message, right? If I'm just constantly pushing the behavior rather than the grace, the behavior will actually get pushed out and become much less likely, right? If the shower is guilt and law, the scent will be sweat, right? It won't clean anything. If the message is grace, it will always be purifying. And the purifying of Jesus makes us new. The purifying of Jesus is, is not even meant firstly to motivate you to act, but just to be clean. The, the spirit that is in you will motivate you when necessary, when it hears the gospel, because that's what the spirit does. It works in tandem with the word and reveals Christ. Right? That's what, that's what Paul is banking on here. The more the gospel is preached, the more grace and mercy are heard, the more loving kindness is heard, the more we're cleansed. Right? The more our, our walls come down. Some of, we just have these walls of ongoing anger and, and guilt and resentment and it just builds. And so any little thing that, that somebody does, it just puts another stack of bricks on it and it just never goes away. All the while hearing 
you got to get it right. you got to get it right. you got to get it right. That isn't going to do it. It's going to build the wall higher. This is a major thing Paul is asking. You realize that. This, this is real time. I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to you in light of the gospel to let this go and let this man go free. That, that's personal property. That's like your car, your house. Could you imagine if the gospel required your house? Oh, beloved, it does. It most certainly does. You don't think you own anything you have, do you? No, 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 we don't own squat. It's all his. It's all his. And at any moment, it can be required of you. The question is, what would make God's people live in such a way that the world would sit up and say, you lost your house, right? They owed you money. You let it go, right? The gospel's so big. It's so big. And it's so good. And we just don't hear it enough. Like, I, I get it. There's a lot to talk about. We don't hear the gospel enough. That's the best thing about this book. It's the best thing about reality. Only the gospel has the power to conquer sin. And it has. It has. For us, it's only in need of believing what we've heard. You see, the gospel's meant to heal things. Bring divided human beings together. That's what it, that, that's what it, that's what it's meant to do. We speak the words of reconciliation to the world. God is making his appeal through us, Second Corinthians 7, I believe, making his appeal to the world through us. See, it's a command that you repent of your sins. It's a command. It's required of every human being. And yet, how does God go about saving? By making an appeal to us in light of what Jesus has done through us. And so if we aren't reconciled, how can we talk about reconciliation? How can we talk about the rift that's been closed between us and heaven when we can't close the rift by the person that sits two aisles behind us because they really ticked us off? Right? Jesus has come. He's come. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended. He reigns. He will return literally, bodily. Visibly, every eye will see him. He is what saves us. When I say that, I mean to speak to the fact that he's no longer dead. He's been risen from the dead, raised from the dead. Believer, you are right with God this morning. An unbeliever, you may be as right with him as we are at the moment of believing that Jesus is telling you the truth. You can be reconciled to God 
whether or not other people ever let you be reconciled to them. You can be reconciled to God because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And yes, we may get it wrong and we may mess up sometimes, but we have been reconciled to God also. That's all we are. Now that Jesus has come, all of creation is being reconciled to God in Him. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Reconciliation is the blood of what Jesus has done for the cosmos. That unity, that reconciliation touches everything. It expands to various people groups and nations. So it certainly expands to conflict and tension between people in a small community or in a little church. And of course it affects it there. It is Lord over our codes. It's Lord over our rules. It's Lord over our relationships. Of course there's things we ought not to do to one another. Of course there is. The gospel doesn't deny that. The gospel doesn't say, no, 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 you haven't been hurt. Get over it. No, the gospel embraces it. Jesus bore it for you. He felt what you felt in being hurt. And he's atoned for it. Look to him. Look to him. God's not letting what's been done to you drift off into the air somewhere so that there's actually no justice. Just don't talk about it. No, no, no. All the the evil that's been wrought on you, not just the evil you've produced, has been covered by Christ for you. Nothing will get left hanging. Right? Either, I mean, what if a Christian sins against me? We've talked about this before, right? Beloved, if that Christian sinned against you, that sin of theirs was nailed to the tree with Jesus. It's not floating around unaccounted for and, oh, they just get to go to heaven now? They don't have to worry about what they did to me? Jesus worried about what they did to you. Jesus took the punishment that they deserve for what they did to you. Please don't think that. The gospel's not saying nothing hurts, there's no such thing as pain, all you stupid humans, get over it. No, 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 no. The gospel is the one honest message under the sun, beloved. The one thing that takes into account not just what you have done, but what's been done to you also. Look to Christ. Do you know how good He is? Do you know how sufficient He is? Do you know how forgiving He is and loving He is and wonderful He is? Look to Christ. Don't expect anything from sinners. It'll just get you hurt. If the vertical gap between God and people has been spanned, The horizontal gap between people and people can never again be insurmountable. That's all the gospel is saying. This saving reality is meant to be evident in the way we treat one another. The way we forgive one another, even when we've been seriously wronged. Absolutely. And it really hurts when Christians wrong you, when your own family wrongs you. It really hurts. It really hurts. God is not blind to this. Jesus was betrayed by a friend. The saving reality of reconciliation of all things in Christ is meant to be evident in the way we treat one another, the way we forgive one another, restored to one another. Right? No cold shoulders anymore. But what, what if the church was just that? There's just no cold shoulders here. We, we ought to be dead. We ought to be punished for eternity and we're going to get the new heavens and the new earth and no one can snatch us out of his hand. That's, that's who we are. 
That's who we are. The new community that Jesus Christ has created through the gospel is one marked by the love of God that overcomes conflict and estrangement. So when Paul addresses Philemon, he doesn't do it on the basis of what is required. Requirements hurt unity. They hurt peace because the alliance is formed out of what is required. The peace that results is uneasy. Nobody knows if that's what everybody wanted or if everybody felt that they actually were treated fairly. So bitterness just sits in there and resentment sits in there. The gospel cleans all that away, forgives all of it. But grace, grace goes all the way. It touches every sphere of our hurt, our pain, and even our violence and meanness towards those we have hurt ourselves. The kindness of God, the fullness of Jesus' work for us is displayed in the fact that we are called to obey these things by appeal, not by force. The kindness of believers towards others is the result of God's kindness to us, not obligation. He's not a taskmaster telling you what you should do. He's a savior who sent his son to die for you, bore the punishment, bore the guilt, saying, look at what I have done for you. You're free. You're clean. God doesn't want a bunch of slaves running around doing their duty. He wants a bunch of redeemed sinners going around throwing a party filled with love and reconciliation and kindness and forgiveness for everyone because God's grace is so good. If we've been unified by Christ, what stands between us now? What is it? What keeps us at a distance? Yes, there are complicated pasts, no question. Yes, there are complicated relationships and paths to reconciliation, no question. But beloved, we are a new creation. Our sins are forgiven. We are righteous. We have been reconciled to God. And his grace will always go further than our sin. Be at peace because it's yours. And so love one another. Because God first loved us. And I promise you on the authority of God's word, he does right now. No matter what you're carrying inside. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to open your word together with your people, your saints, your redeemed ones, your precious and beloved ones, everyone. Father, I thank you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we remember what has been written in your word. God, protect us from what is false. Protect us with the truth that bears witness to Christ and his redeeming, saving grace and your enduring promise that sent it out in the first place. We ask and pray these things for those who believe and for those who don't, Father. Save and make whole and make clean and make new.